Hey everyone, this is Jason, and I am uh, part of South Bend City Church, and this is the South Bend City Church podcast. It's a chance to invite a bunch of you who may be from a distance or aren't able to join us for a gathering to still be a part of what's going on. So uh, here's kind of the update. Uh, in the spring, we spent some time simply dreaming about being a church. So we kind of made this announcement that I was going to leave where I was and jump into this new work in South Bend, and some of us were doing this together. And then we had a few gatherings in the city of South Bend where we dreamed together and prayed together. So that was the spring. We dreamed a lot. Then we turned toward the summer where we started experimenting with different ways of being a church, different ways of worshiping, um, even some unexpected thoughts about how to approach doubt in a world that's raising lots of questions right now about what Christian faith is or what it even means to talk about God. Uh, so we did some experimental stuff through the summer. And now this is very exciting. Uh, now we get to turn to growing into a church together, from dreaming to experimenting to growing together. And now we're gathering every Wednesday night at 6.30 p.m. at the Brick in South Bend. It's uh, right on the river near the Farmer's Market in IUSB. And uh, we ha haven't really launched yet. That's, that's still sort of around the corner for us. This is just a, a period of time for us now to try to take some of the things that we've tried together uh, take the scriptures and especially the story of Jesus that is at the center of our community and begin growing into our own unique way of expressing that story and living that story together. So that's that's what we're up to right now. Every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m., uh, we'd love to have you join us. We've got Kid Care at the YMCA, which is right next door to the brick. It shares a parking lot there. And uh, if you've got kids age six weeks through fifth grade, you can take them to the Y right before we get started. And then we're at the brick from 6.30 until about 7.45 for the first part of the night. And then a bunch of us uh, love to hang around. Um, the, the bar opens and the brick is a great place to hang and we've got snacks. And we want to grow together, not just by how we sing and pray and study the scriptures, but also how we laugh together and tell stories together and just get to know each other as a family. So I sure hope that you'll join us. Now, last Wednesday was a peculiar night because <laughs> like 10 seconds into our gathering, uh, there was this, appar apparently there was like a mini tornado in our neighborhood there in South Bend and it took the power out. And I, for a second, guys, I thought, oh, no, <laughs> this is a, such a bummer. Like, we, we're just getting started with our weekly gatherings, and the power's out, and we're done. And after, like, 10 seconds, I was like, no, wait a minute. Because if there's one thing I'm learning about our church, about this unexpected group of people who are coming together and growing into a church together, if there's one thing I'm learning, it's that you better not underestimate this crew. Because uh, this is a wild-eyed, open to anything, ready to try things, like let's go kind of group of people. And that was the spirit last Wednesday night. So we said, should we just keep going? And everybody said, yeah. So we did Church in the Dark and it was amazing. <laughs> church in the Dark, no sound system. Uh, we sang together. We did the, the teaching together. Um, but of course, the one thing about not having power is there was no recording. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to sort of reproduce that. I've never done this before, but I'm just going to sort of give the sermon at my dining room table here. <laughs> And I've got my dog as an audience, which, by the way, he's old and he's big, so he snores and he snores loudly. So if you if you hear a rumble in the background, that might be my golden retriever, Jack, just uh, enjoying an afternoon siesta. Um, but that's the deal. Uh, we're going to jump into this, and we'd love to see you on a Wednesday night at 6.30. As always, you can find out everything that's going on with us at southbendcitychurch.com. And the best thing you can do is sign up for the email newsletter there, and you will be totally in the loop. But all that being said, uh, here's a little bit of teaching from the book of Acts.
So last Wednesday, after we sang together and prayed together, uh, we turned to the book of Acts together. But to get us into it, I just threw a question out in the room, and I asked everyone to think about the last few days that we had lived through. Uh, we had lived through uh, the Trump video with Billy Bush. We lived through, <laughs> suffered through, survived, whatever you want to call it, uh, the, the following debate that Sunday night. And I just asked everyone, if you think about the last few days, if you think about any moment that you checked Facebook or read Twitter or watched the news or listened to talk radio, if you, if you think about any moment when you did that, what feelings come to mind? And people just sort of threw out the feelings they had. It was fun to have a conversation in the room together. And I heard lots of things. People said uh, depressed, broken, angry, frustrated. Somebody said hope, which I loved. Somebody else in the room said they, they felt this question inside. Is this it? Is, is this it? And that question in particular, that really resonated with me. I remember sitting on my couch that weekend or in my, in my lazy boy chair, looking, looking at Twitter for way too long, reading commentary on one of the political developments of the weekend and just being more and more depressed and just thinking, is this it? Is this, is this us at our best? Is this what gets revealed when we see what's really there? Is this it? Uh, maybe, maybe you felt that during that time. Maybe you feel that right now. Uh, maybe it's not the politics, though. Maybe you've had that feeling about something else. Maybe in your marriage, you're a few years into it. You know, you had your vows and you had your honeymoon and you were so excited. Now you're into year two or three or 10 or 30. I don't know. And you're looking at your marriage and you're looking at her or him and you're thinking about what you feel inside and you're like, is this it? Is this it? I've had that feeling in, in my in my mental health life because I had this really severe struggle with grief and depression uh, in my young adult life in college. And it, it was intense. And it, it was intense enough that after several years of trying to get help and trying to figure it out, it just got worse and worse. And eventually I spent a week in a mental health institution just bawling my eyes out, just grieving and letting this, this sense of darkness just sort of take over because I didn't know what else to do. And I just remember thinking, is this it? Is this all I have inside me? Is this the way it's always going to be? This is not an uncommon feeling I think a lot of us have, whether it's the headlines or what's going on within us. And that, that's an important backdrop um, for the beginning of the book of Acts and what a church really is. So if that seems like a weird intro, just trust me for a moment. We're going to go there. We're going to talk about the beginning of the church, the very, very beginning of the church. We're going to talk about things like witness. Uh, we're going to talk about blessing. We're going to talk about open systems and closed systems and what it is that you and I are up to as we try to become a church together. Um, so uh, let's jump into the book of Acts. The very beginning, this is uh, the book of Acts, which is in the New Testament. And the very first sentence begs a bit of an explanation because it says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. In my former book. So here's the first thing you ought to know. This is like Bible one-on-one, but a lot of us don't catch this. It's confusing in the layout, but the book of Acts is actually the second part of a literary work. And the first part of that literary work is a book called Luke. You might have heard of the Gospel of Luke. So that's a little earlier in the New Testament, but Luke and Acts form parts one and two of his literary work. And so he says, in my first book, which would be Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, there's something curious about that because uh, I've read Luke, and you can check it out, 
Luke begins by telling about the birth of Jesus. It even starts a little before that. And then it tells the entire story of Jesus's life on earth, his ministry, his teaching, his healings, his miracles, the opposition that he ran into, his suffering, his execution on a cross, his resurrection, his time with the apostles. And when he goes back to be with the father and he ascends, it's like it doesn't stop halfway through his ministry. Like it's the whole story. So it's a little peculiar that that Luke says, um, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Well, there's there's more to this. Uh, At the end of the first nine verses of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, it's written, after Jesus said a bunch of these things that he says in the middle there, it says he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, this is one of those stories in the New Testament that echoes an older story. And the best way to hear this story is if you've heard the other stories. So let me tell you a little summary of the older story. Here we've got uh, Jesus taken up before their very eyes. Well, there's an older story in the book, uh, or in the, in the Old Testament, in the book of 2 Kings. And it talks about these two prophets. Now, we said this before in our gatherings. Remember, a prophet's not primarily about future telling. The first work of the prophet is about truth telling. So the prophet does things like he diagnoses the moment. He says, here's what's wrong with the system that we've built. Here's what's wrong with the world that we are living in right now. The prophet is a truth teller. He diagnoses the moment. And then the prophet is a dreamer. He reimagines the world for people who have made too much peace with the status quo. For people who have resigned themselves to say, this is the way things have always been. It's the way they will always be. The prophet also is the one who says, no, you need to dream again. You need to open yourself up again to a different future. So Elijah is a prophet, and that's his work with the people of Israel. And Elijah has a buddy named Elisha, and I know that's really confusing. So Elijah has a buddy named, a buddy named Elisha, and Elisha is sort of like his apprentice. And Elisha knows that Elijah is about to depart, and he's no longer going to be with them. His, his life is going to end here on earth. And Elisha says to Elijah, he says, I want a double portion of your spirit. See, it's like he's saying, the work that's going on in you, Elijah, I want that work to expand in me. I want it to grow in me and through me. I want it to to blow out into the world through my life, coming from you, Elijah, sort of into my life and through my life. I want it to expand in the world. More of that work of diagnosing and dreaming and shaking people alive into a new future. That's what he says he wants. And Elijah says to Elisha, you're going to get it on one condition. If you see me when I go to be with the Father. He says, if you see me when I'm taken from you, you will receive a double portion. And then, guys, it's amazing. There's this music that comes in, right? And it's like, (laughs) you get it? I'm, I'm sorry. That was really, really dumb. That's the song Chariots of Fire. And the reason I do that is because a chariot of fire comes down and grabs Elisha and takes him up to heaven. And Elisha sees it. And it means he gets a double portion of the spirit. And so here we are in the book of Acts. And Jesus has said, you're going to do greater things than me. He said this to his apostles. He said, you are going to do greater things. And Luke begins. He says that the the story of the church, uh, or the story, sorry, the story I told in the first part of this literary work is all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Which is to say that all of you disciples, all of you who call yourselves a church, you actually 
are standing at, at, at the prospect of the work of Jesus expanding, of all the good that he did, of all the truth-telling that he did, of all the reimagining that he did to create the world into something more beautiful, to make us more human. You are, you are standing in the possibility of that expanding with you, which is why the book of Luke uh, talks about Jesus a lot, but the book of Acts also talks about him a ton. In fact, the name Jesus shows up 68 times in the book of Acts. Uh, as the people of God rally around Jesus and keep that work going. Now, this is really important because when collections of people who call themselves Christians spend all of their energy condemning the world, I don't care what you call it. It's not a church because a church is where the work of Jesus is expanding in the world. And Jesus says things like, I didn't come here to condemn the world. I came to save it, to heal it. When a bunch of people who call themselves Christians put all their energy into deciding who's in and who's out, it's not a church, I don't care what you call it. It's not a church because you can't find Jesus putting his energy into who's in and who's out. But when you find all kinds of people, all kinds of people, rich, poor, white, black, conservative, liberal, gay, straight, theist, atheist, when you find them centering their community on Jesus and learning to do what he did, now you've got yourself a church. See, the problem with all that distracting stuff is it's too small for the church. Culture war stuff is too small for the church. Gatekeeping is too small for the church. We're called to be a part of this expanding of what Jesus was up to, of this massive, beautiful, unimaginably large work of inviting everyone into the sacred experience of discovering Christ at the center of our lives, at the center of our community, at the center of our world. That is the kind of big, expansive work the church is called to. And this is the claim right at the birth moment of the church, right at its inception. This is the claim that church can mean that people live in the flow of Jesus's work, a double portion of his spirit, a continuation of all the good that he was up to in the world, all the diagnosing and all of the dreaming and all of the healing and all the reconciling that he was doing. That's what we get to be up to. Now, uh, Acts goes on. And uh, writes that after Jesus' suffering, he showed himself to these people and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. So we need to talk about Jesus and the way he speaks about the kingdom of God. And then we're going to turn back to those convincing proofs in the period of 40 days. But first, the kingdom of God. Uh, we, we need to like just, whenever, whenever we see that, we should remind ourselves, what was the substance of that teaching? How, how did Jesus talk about it? How did he get people into it? So like for me, uh, more and more in my life, especially as it feels like the world just keeps breaking, especially as um, the headlines are really, really dark sometimes, especially as the political season is just really, really, really anxiety producing and, and frustrating right now. If, if you feel that way, I find myself returning again and again to the way that Jesus begins talking about the kingdom, uh, like in the gospel of Matthew. And in the, in the Gospel of Matthew, right out of the gate, uh, some of the first words that we hear about this, this uh, come from Matthew chapter 5. And sometimes this is called the Beatitudes. But let me take you to that and just sort of work you through it. And, and do whatever you got to do right now to just receive these words, uh, to let them hit you on multiple levels if they can. The, uh, the way this begins is, is Jesus finds himself with a crowd of, of hearers and he prepares to teach. And he opens his mouth and he uses a word in Greek uh, that has its root in the word makarios. Makarios. 
Now, this is a word that you can find in Greek writing to describe the blissful existence of the gods, which is a description I got from another scholar, but isn't that amazing? The blissful existence of the gods, meaning like you imagine the gods and they have everything they could ever want. Like they just live their life on champagne and strawberries and Cubs winning the World Series. I don't know. They just like, like life is just this eternal existence of goodness and, and abundance and plenty and they never want anything. That's what the word, that's, that's uh, a way that this word is used. Jesus puts that word uh, at the beginning of this teaching, uh, the way we read it in Matthew, and it begins, Makarios or blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, that, first of all, that should just catch you off guard. And sometimes what Christians do with this is they say, oh, so, so Jesus is prescribing that we should be poor in spirit. Like that's how we get the blessing. No, I think that like that totally misses it. This isn't like, here's how you get the blessing. So you better like act poor in spirit, like kind of like hang your head and, and be sort of oddly self-deprecating or some kind of false modesty. Now that's just weird, right? Like if you've ever met somebody who's playing that game, it's really uncomfortable for everyone, right? <laughs> that's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, no, no. When you find yourself with a poverty within you, I'm here to say I can bless you for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Like there, there, is, there is a reality breaking into this world through Jesus that is so abundant and full that it can overwhelm whatever poverty you find inside you. And this is a really a big deal because I don't know about you, but right now, often what I find inside me is a poverty in my spirit. Like in, inside wherever I hope to find joy, fullness, happiness, contentment, peace, a sense of security within wherever that inner place is where I expect or hope to find that. Often what I find when the world breaks, when the headlines are difficult, when I am struggling, when somebody I love is having a difficult time, what I find inside me is instead there's a poverty there. There, There's something missing there that I long for. Have you ever felt that inside? And I don't know about you, but for me, I know that my temptation in those moments when I find a poverty in my heart, in my spirit, is I say either I'm going to put a wall around my spirit so thick and so high that nobody could ever rob me again. And so I, I just sort of cut myself off. Or even worse, I say, you know what? It, I, don't, I don't like the fact that I was robbed. I'm going to rob somebody else. And so we act out against somebody else because we, we find this poverty within us and we don't like it. So I'm going to make you poor too. Have you ever sensed that energy in the world? That, that, that really dark things come from that sort of thing inside. Well, Jesus says, if you have a poverty within you, just sit there for a moment with that poverty. Just, it, it's okay. Because I bring a word of blessing right in the midst of it. Because there's a kingdom breaking in that's abundant, that's not even defeated by that poverty, that can overwhelm it with fullness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is just this overwhelming word of grace right there where you are. And this is how he starts talking about the kingdom of God. And then he goes on, he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And I don't know about you, but like often my my reaction to the world right now perhaps is to be angry. Maybe you feel that way about some of the stuff that's going on in the world right now. And I, I think I'm learning that there is a more trustworthy impulse sometimes. Sometimes anger is exactly right. Like there are things that should make us angry. Like, when I hear women talked about the way that I heard them talked about in that video that I posted a couple of weeks ago, um, I, I did. I got angry. I think I think we should be angry about that. I think we should be angry that this is a world where women have to put up with that kind of a thing. But I also I also think there's another reliable, trustworthy feeling inside, one that taps into your your inner world, which is, I kind of wanted to weep. I just felt this sadness inside. 
And I, it's not a very comfortable feeling. It's not easy to weep. You know, it's easier to judge than to weep. It's easier to like have um, angry opinions that you can <laughs> that you can tweet. You know what I mean? Than it is to simply mourn the things that are broken in the world right now. But Jesus says, no, blessed are you when you mourn. Like it, it may be that the most profound thing that we can do in response to the world that we see right now, whether it's what's happening in Syria or Iraq or what's happening in our country or in our neighborhoods or maybe something in your family or your life, it may be that the most profound thing we can do is to mourn. I, another good word for that is lament, which is uh, this, this very biblical very human word for what it is to respond to the broken things in our world. Uh, he says, blessed are those who mourn, you will be comforted. He says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And here too, like, it's like, no, I don't think that's how that works, Jesus. Like, have you paid attention? It's dog eat dog out there. It's each man for himself. You know, those who get are those who take. And he says, no, blessed are the meek, for they will receive, they will inherit. Not because they went out there and took it for themselves, but it will come to them as a gift. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. When you ache for things to be right, when you ache for the broken places in the world to be put back together, when it gnaws inside you, he says, blessed are you in that hunger for you will be filled. And I think about all the things that I do to fill that hunger artificially, to fill that place inside that longs for things to be made right, I, I fill it with distraction. I fill it with, like, it's easy to medicate it with, like, food or drink or just uh, TV or entertainment or or just triviality, the, the things that distract us from what breaks our hearts. And he says, you know, maybe you should just sit with that hunger. Maybe it's okay to stay awake sometimes at night. Maybe that's a, a more deep and rich and beautiful way of being human, especially because he says that hunger will be filled. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, this is interesting to me because so far, I think Jesus has been describing experiences of powerlessness. You know, if you're poor in spirit, if, you're, if you've been robbed of that inner fullness, if you are mourning or weeping because you have lost something that matters to you or someone who matters to you, if you are meek, if you are aching for things to be made right, in all those ways, those are experiences of powerlessness. But now things start to turn. And he says, blessed are the merciful, which, by the way, if you're merciful, that presumes that you have some power, right? I mean, to show someone mercy is to refrain from inflicting some punishment against them. It's to refrain from hurting them, which presumes that you have the power to punish, to hurt, to act out some agency in the world. And he says, uh, they will be shown mercy. He says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And I think about all the temptations that we have to see a demon in every corner and how easy it is to mock the naive ones who keep dreaming. But I think about how our, our vision gets so clouded because we see a demon in every corner. We see a darkness everywhere. We read a conspiracy in everything. We just see corruption everywhere. And we lose the capacity to see the good in the world. We stop hearing that first word that God spoke over the world when he said, it is good. We lose the fact that Jesus showed up in a body. And if God lives in a body, then it is good to be human. And sometimes our vision gets so darkened, our hearts get so corrupted by the cynicism of the world that we're, we lose the ability to see God in the world. And maybe the ability to see God in the future. But Jesus says, blessed are you, even if everybody else calls you naive. Blessed are you, the pure in heart, for you'll see God. And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. 
And I've just got to tell you guys, I've known some bona fide peacemakers. Like, I've, I've, I've not not all these people well, but I've sat in the room. I've sat under at the feet learning from people like who've been nominated for Nobel Peace Prizes and who have done really, really good peacemaking work, young and old, famous and people you've never heard of, but from very difficult places in the world. And I can just tell you, if there's one thing that peacemakers don't get, it's praise. <laughs> like to be a peacemaker is to refuse to take a side. To be a peacemaker is to risk everyone on every side looking at you as an enemy because you don't have the guts to sign up for the war, right? But uh, unexpectedly, paradoxically, Jesus says, no, you'll be called sons of God. It's as if God is saying, look, if you're a peacemaker, none of the tribes will want you, but I'll take you. <laughs> if, if you're a peacemaker, none of the sides in the war will claim you. But God says, hey, I will claim you. That's pretty good, right? And then he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And it, what, what strikes me in all this is that like in a world that's just broken in so many ways, hurting in so many ways, Jesus begins with this overwhelming word of grace when he talks about the kingdom. He says, poverty in spirit, mourning, meek, I will bless you. I will fill you. I will meet you. I will comfort you. And it's like, it's like all of us are protecting ourselves and, and covering our hearts up and, and trying to prevent our spirits from being robbed, putting walls around ourselves, hitting back, hurting. And it's like Jesus says, in all of that, it's like you were trying to fight for the world with the very power that is breaking it right now. And you can't fight for the world with the same power that is breaking it. You will just break it too. Uh, another way I've said this before is that whatever you were trying to defeat cannot be defeated by the power that created it. Whatever you're fighting can't be defeated by the power that created it. And it's almost like Jesus is leading us through a transformation process, some kind of conversion experience where we let go of that, that energy that comes from the broken places and we instead find a different energy, a different power. And we, if we, it's like if we trust these words and we let them sink deeply into us, maybe, just maybe, we will become peacemakers, people who put the world back together. Maybe, just maybe, we will become such a threat to the things that are broken in the world, to the evil things in the world, to the messed up things in the world. We will become such an actual legitimate threat to all of that, that it will have to come after us, which is the definition of persecution. So Jesus, he, uh, that's, that's how he talks about the kingdom of God. And it says in the book of Acts that after he comes out of that grave, he spends 40 days. And one of the things he does is he talks to them about the kingdom of God. And, and we can rest uh, pretty confidently that when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, it sounded like this. Because we, we get these very words from Jesus. Now, there's something going on in every one of these uh, individual beatitudes. Like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's like a formula. There's a blessing there's a description of who gets that blessing, and then there's a reason for the blessing. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's a blessing, there's those who get the blessing, and there's a reason for the blessing, for they will be comforted. And what strikes me about every one of these is that every one of these assumes an open system. What I mean by that is every one of these assumes that there's more that, that going on than meets the eye, that there is more in the equation than what you see. Because like, like if, if, if it's just a closed system, if all we have is what you see, if all there is is what you see, then the poor in spirit are just poor in spirit. There, there is no intrusion of abundance or fullness coming for them in the kingdom. If all you have is the loss that you are weeping over, well, there's no comfort coming for you. I mean, there's just a gaping hole in your life where that person or that dream or that thing that you loved is gone. If, if all there is is what you see, well, if it's a closed system, well, then this makes no sense at all. 
But what if it's not a closed system? What if it's an open system? I mean, think, for example, if you're the followers of Jesus and you, you spent these three years with Jesus and you discover Jesus is the best thing you've ever known. I mean, like he has shown you love like you've never seen love before. He's revealed God to you in a way that you've never understood God before. He's, he's the best thing that you've ever known. And then them, the, the authorities, the dark powers, they take the best thing you have ever known. They arrest him in the mockery of a trial. They drag him toward a torture chamber. They beat him up. They break his body. They put him on a cross right in front of your eyes. And there you say, that's what I thought, right? It's a closed system. At the end of the day, the evil always has the final word. There's nothing new breaking in here. Maybe you feel naive and you think, what an idiot I was for thinking that something new could happen. What an idiot I was for thinking the world could be different than it's always been. And, and you sit there for three days while Jesus is in a grave and you say, yeah, it's a closed system. All there is is what we see and what we've always known. All there is is evil having the final word. All there is is entropy. All there is is things breaking down. There's no new energy, no new life, no new hope, no new future. This is just what things are. And then you hear these rumors from the women who come first with the word because God seems to understand that maybe the women are the best ones to entrust at the beginning with this powerful and important message. And they come back from a grave and they say it's empty. And then it's not just rumors you hear, but you find yourself in the room with Jesus again. And he's there and he's resurrected. And, and if there were ever um, a moment to say, maybe there was more going on than I realized. <laughs> if there were ever a moment to say, maybe the evil doesn't have the final word. Maybe things don't always go the way they've always gone. Maybe there was more than entropy and breakdown. Maybe there is new creative energy creating new days and new futures and new moments ahead of us. If there's ever an experience of that, I suspect it's these people with Jesus resurrected. And in the book of Acts, it says, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, giving them many convincing proofs that he was alive, showing himself to them. They were, they were touching him, being held by him. The places where the wounds were on his body, like, like flesh in blood evidence that there was more than meets the eye. There's more going on in this world than what it seems. There is more than evil and entropy. Things are not just breaking down. And then I wonder about that period of 40 days. Uh, it's interesting. They, they had uh, a, a matter of hours where there they were uh, seeing Jesus on a cross. And then they have 40 days with the resurrected Christ, with this evidence that things are not just the way they seem, that it's an open system, perhaps, that there is new life breaking, and that maybe the same logic of those beatitudes, you know, that, that there's blessing for those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are broken, if they will just sit and trust that they don't have to bring that same dark energy to bear on the world, but if they sit and trust, maybe something different will break in. They've had this experience with the resurrected Christ for 40 days they're with him. And I wonder if they needed the 40 days. There's a psychologist named Rick Hansen who writes about things like negativity bias. And he talks about Velcro and Teflon. And uh, he says that our human brains have a natural bias toward negativity. And the way he explains it is that in an evolutionary history, if you have... Um, a bunch of different uh, iterations of people, different brain structures, the different ways of thinking about the natural world that you live in. And you've got some people whose brains give more energy or attention to the stick than the carrot. Well, in, in that scenario, those are the ones who are going to survive. They're the fittest to survive, right? And so 
you um, you know, if you pass a carrot and you don't notice it, you'll probably find another carrot. But if there's a stick coming at you, a threat coming at you, a predator, an, another member of your species who's trying to take you out or a boulder falling down a mountain that could kill you. Well, if you miss that, that's it. You're done. Your DNA is wiped out. You're not passing that along, right? Well, over, over all the iterations, that creates a bias in our brains toward negativity. We pay way more attention to it. And he says that your brain is like Velcro when it comes to negative experiences, negative news, negative information. And it's like Teflon with good news, good experiences, good information. When something bad happens, when something bad is in the news, when there's bad information, when, when you get hurt, when you get a bad email, when you get a bad text, when, when, the, when the broken things reveal themselves, our brains are fixed on that. It, it attaches to us like Velcro. When something good happens, when a, when a blessing comes along, when unexpected hope breaks in, when a new possibility emerges, well, it's like Teflon, like our brains don't grab that very well, which is why he says we need to meditate very intentionally in order to have a more accurate assessment of what's going on in the world. When good comes in, not only is it healthy to meditate on it, it it's more accurate. It, like if in a given day you get five good emails and five bad emails, your brain is going to say that was a very bad day for email. Heck, if, you're, if in a given day you get one really bad email and a hundred great emails, one email calling you names and telling you all that you did wrong and I'm coming after you, and like 99 emails of, of encouragement and hey, we're on the right track and things are really going well and look at this good news, you're going to lay awake at night thinking about the bad one, aren't you? I mean, that's kind of how we're wired, right? But that's a totally inaccurate assessment of reality. So he says in order to have an accurate assessment of reality, we've got to proactively meditate on the good because that's the only way to calibrate for brains that are attached to the negative. And I, th I, I call that out because these guys have a few hours with Jesus on the cross and 40 days with the resurrected Christ. And I wonder if they needed the 40 days. Uh, and we're, we're going somewhere with all this. This is a picture of what church is. This is a picture of what you and I are up to with South Bend City Church. At the end of this passage of Acts chapter 1 through 9, toward the very end, Jesus talks to them and he says, uh, You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And there's a word in there that can make people really uncomfortable, and the word is Witness. How do you feel when I say that word? Do you, do you have an uncomfortable memory of like, has somebody ever witnessed to you? Was it weird? I don't know. Did somebody bust out the napkin at the diner and like draw the the two cliffs, you know, like and you're on one side and God's on the other and like you need Jesus in the middle, like, which is a very bizarre, like, don't don't even get me into like the weird soteriological categories going on there theologically. We're going to break that down later, okay, um, in some future sermon or something, but uh how do you feel when you hear the word witness? Like, do you picture cold calling? Like, like cold calling for Jesus, like knocking on people's doors? I don't, I don't know how you feel about that word. Uh, I, I, I feel like a complicated relationship with it. Or, or maybe somebody's told you that you did something to compromise your witness. I don't know, you had a beer, and they said, well, that compromised your witness. And I, I don't really know where that comes from, to be honest, but that's not an uncommon thing to hear, right? Well, I, I want to press into that because... Like, think of everything going on here. So we have the people of God, the church, people called the church. And, and we, we understand that, that whatever Jesus was up to is going to expand into their lives, into their community. It's what they are going to be up to. 
And what Jesus is up to, well, it's the kingdom of God. It's revealed through like moments when he talks about these blessings that come to us in our poverty, in our mourning, in our weakness, in our meekness, and our aching for things to be made right, in our calling as peacemakers in the world. And then you have these people who have heard these teachings and walked with Jesus and seen how good it is to be a part of that. But then all of that goodness goes to a cross and it sits there dead. And they're witnesses to the fact that the good things always get overwhelmed by the bad things. Evil always has the final word, except it's not the only thing they're witnesses to, right? Because there were several hours on a cross that Friday, but there were 40 days with the resurrected Jesus where they saw the wounds, they saw the resurrected body, they ate with him again, they heard from him again, they embraced him again. They had 40 days to witness to the good. And I wonder if that's exactly what they needed because of Velcro and Teflon and the fact that right now, you and I today, we are witnesses to lots of things. Like, what have you seen in the news in the last few days? What have you heard on the radio? What have you seen in your Facebook feed? What have you read on Twitter? We've been witnesses to lots of things lately. And a lot of it's ugly. A lot of it's not very good. But because of negativity bias and because of this sort of collective attachment we have to what's wrong and broken, it's very possible that you and I are not reading reality correctly. And I wonder if what's being said here is that church, like you need to witness to Jesus. Keep your eyes on the movement of Christ because it is more real than the moments of brokenness. The energy that is putting the world back together is more substantial than the energy that is breaking it. The power that is breaking things down in the world is nothing compared to the power that is creating the world right now. And to be a church is to be a group of people who imperfectly, sloppily, messily, one day at a time together, we are witnessing to Jesus turning our attention to Jesus because as we do that, we keep discovering that in spite of all the negativity that we see, we also see the good that is breaking into the world. And that's what it means to be a church. This unbelievably hopeful, optimistic vision of what it means. You could call it naive. Fine, call it naive. I'll just call it uh, Christian. (laughs) You could call it optimistic. I'd say no, because optimism is like about an attitude. I'd say this is about grounding ourselves in a reality and seeing what Jesus is up to in the world. So, friends, uh, we're beginning to call ourselves a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. And we believe that means uh, a community centered on Jesus because we find grace and peace when we look at Jesus. And we think it means a community that meditates on the gifts that keep rolling into our lives in spite of the empty places because grace means gift. To be a community of grace is to be a community that receives together, that has our eyes wide open together to the goodness that keeps breaking in. And a community of peace is a community that calls out the broken places, but with a fundamentally different energy than than the kind of energy that just keeps breaking things, right? It's not just reactive energy. It's not just... It's not just yelling or screaming at the broken things, but it, it, it's, it's an energy that's been transformed because we keep hearing Jesus say, blessed are you when you're poor inside. Blessed are you when you are mourning. Blessed are you when you are meek. Blessed are you when you ache for it to be different. And we hear those words and we receive them in a deep place inside again and again together. So we're transformed into a fundamentally different kind of energy or power so that we can be such powerful advocates for peace in the world, for things to be put back together in our neighborhoods, in our city, in our families, in our schools, in our own lives. So we can participate in this putting things back together that God is always up to. 
And then maybe we find ourselves becoming such a threat to the broken places, to the broken energies that they actually have to come after us. And then we will know that we are on to something, my friends. So we are a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. And uh, I, hope, I hope the tabletop sermon here works for you guys okay. Uh, we'll be back together uh, every Wednesday. We'd love to see you. 6.30 p.m. Uh, Wednesdays at the Brick. And um, as we are learning to say to one another, grace and peace, South Bend City Church. <laughs>